the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Gospel lesson opens on the unlikely collaboration of two factions in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. The Pharisees on the one hand, and the Herodians on the other. The Pharisees were descendants of a rigid religious sect whose taproots emerged during the the return from captivity in Babylon and Persia. As Jerusalem was rebuilt and the temple was rededicated, a concern arose from certain leaders that the idolatry and disregard for the law of God that had resulted in the exile could never be tolerated again. From that point forward, the group that would become the Pharisees formed around a scrupulous interpretation of the law, safeguarded on all sides by traditions to prevent anyone from getting even near violating the law. Their reasoning was that if people were extra fastidious, they would be even more likely to keep the law. Only by being universally meticulous, they thought, could the people avoid accidental errors. By contrast, the Herodians were a political faction in league with the royal family of Herod the Great and his sons. The Herodians drew their political power directly from their collusion with Rome. It was, after all, Julius Caesar who had granted Herod the Great the title King of the Jews, even though Herod was neither Jewish nor of the royal line of David. The Herodians pushed major infrastructural and architectural projects in the land that slowly brought Judea up to speed with the conventions of the empire. And while the people had a vexed relationship to all of this, the Herodians kept them docile by giving them both a sense of nostalgic greatness and a sense of belonging to the wider world and her kingdoms, even if it meant at the same time a soft cultural conquest and a confusing of their ancestral identity as a people set apart. The Herodians' urbanity appealed to religious groups like the Sadducees, who also shared their cosmopolitan perspective and who regarded as backwards the rigid traditionalism of the Pharisees. Despite the fact that the origins of both the Pharisees and the Herodians should have pitted them against each other, by the time of Christ they had already approached each other in a common cause. Together, they sought to preserve Judea from increasing Roman oppression from without, and threats of insurrection from the zealots who waged a guerrilla war against the occupiers from within. They knew through watching the hostilities mount between Rome and the zealots that a compromise would be called for in the name of political stability. For the Herodians, this was business as usual. They were used to the ambiguities of power and expedience in order to get things done. For the Pharisees, however, this meant a slow descent into hypocrisy as they sought the short-term end of religious autonomy and local freedoms while holding to the tradition of their fathers. 
With the rising popularity of Jesus, though, whatever distance between the factions collapsed as they fell in with each other to plot his destruction. He became the threat to finally unite them fully. If we're not careful, we can miss the irony of the way they address Jesus in the gospel lesson. Everything they say to him is a feigned gesture of respect, designed to force him to say something incendiary about Rome so that they could report him and hopefully have him arrested and executed. Jesus answers in such a way, though, that sidesteps their trap, disarms their disingenuous motives, but also reveals the heart, the corruption at the heart of each of their factions. To render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what is God's reveals how the sphere of Caesar's kingdom seen from the perspective of Christ is within the sphere of God's kingdom. It is to see the short-term struggle, the short-term end, the short-term battle in light of a long-term goal, a long-term victory, and a long-term faithfulness. To pay what was owed to Caesar was a way of submitting to the ultimate sovereignty of God, entrusting oneself to him even under the rule occasionally of an unjust ruler and awaiting God's judgment to right every wrong. But neither the Herodians nor the Pharisees had any real love for Caesar, nor did they have any desire to submit to him or anyone else. Rather, they were playing a game to retain a sense of local control over the domain that they had carved out for themselves. The Pharisees may at one point have been concerned for the law of God and for a vision of righteousness, but this too came to ultimately serve the purpose of controlling the course of their own history. By the end, by the time of Christ, their work began and ended in an attempt to stave off another captivity and to retain their place in the land. In answering as he does, Jesus offers both of these factions an opportunity to come away from those games and to come forward toward him, knowing full well what they were trying to do and knowing that within a few short days, he would have to show them himself the better way. For within those few days, Jesus would submit to the will of God by submitting to the hands of his Roman crucifiers and their collaborators in Jerusalem. He would entrust himself to his father, and he would see in that trust the true end of his life. And for that obedience he would receive real authority over heaven and earth. But the Herodians and the Pharisees withdrew, unwilling to repent. And tragically, it was all for nothing. The world that the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to safeguard at the high cost of their integrity would be gone within 40 years of this plot to entrap Jesus. Both those things that divided them bitterly against each other in some moments and that united them opportunistically 
against Jesus were both moot by the end of the century. All of the intrigue, compromise, and hypocrisy in the name of their perceived greater good, in fact, failed in the end. But by the end of that same century, while that failure was made manifest, another kingdom had begun to manifest, one that had endured its day of awful apparent defeat, the kingdom of the crucified and risen Christ. Thus, St. Paul exhorts the Philippian church to see in that Christ a new citizenship. Philippi, after all, was a colony founded for those who had succeeded where the Pharisees and the Herodians had failed. The Philippians' ancestors were victorious Romans who had won glory in the eyes of the empire and who had passed that sense of nobility, title, and citizenship to their descendants. But Paul, the converted Roman Pharisee, saw in them something of which their glorious Roman heritage and his own righteous legacy were only very pale images. That was the glory to which they were now called commonly in Christ. It is to this glorious heritage of victory known in and from and through the victorious Savior King that Paul directs their vision. But given his first-hand experience in both the ruling class of Jerusalem and by seeing the sad apostasies knowing, known even in the early days of the church, Paul also knew how easy it would be to be distracted. Many, he says, many do not walk in the way and are now become the enemies of the cross of Christ. Like the Pharisees who so anxiously sought to avoid another exile that they crucified their own Messiah, we can lose our ultimate true end even as we stake a place and defend bitterly a claim in something that is not our true end. Christians, by contrast, have always confessed before all else themselves to be strangers in that world that does these things. Christians are those who joyfully bear a sense of exile in order to retain a clear longing for their real home. As the theologian Scott Hahn reminds us, Christians are exiles because we have a home, but it is not here. As we approach the end of the Trinity season, the lessons begin to impart to us a wisdom of knowing how easily we can be taken captive, how easily we can be distracted, how easily we can be led to oppose our own salvation. We can be disarmed by the anxieties of our moment and enticed by the siren's call of thinking ourselves to be smarter and stronger than those before us, and so probably actually able to fix the world's brokenness, to really make heaven of the earth, to make home here, so that we do not have to bear further the longing for home that is yet to come. Time alone 
in this long green season has not afforded us the wisdom and courage to meet the gravity of that temptation to seize control, to strive for power, or perhaps just to escape the pain of patient waiting. Now at the end of the season, we are no less dependent than we were at the beginning on the help of Christ through the indwelling spirit to overcome the world and our attachments to it in order to be welcomed into the joys of the Father's kingdom. He alone can give us refuge from and disarm our addiction to worldly power and the violence that always ultimately attends it. He alone can comfort the longing of our hearts till that longing is fulfilled. As we walk through time and place in our moment of history, our challenges are not unlike those who came before us. The kingdoms of the world do their best to stake their claim over us, beat their chests, declare themselves to be everlasting, too big to fail, and a fitting replacement for whatever pie-in-the-sky vision you otherwise hope for. And they pressure everyone they can to assent to these idolatrous claims. Ultimately, the kingdoms of the world are all alike. They will become dissatisfied by the common obedience of peace to which our Lord, St. Paul and St. Peter, assign and direct all Christians. These kingdoms will eventually push for an exclusive claim, an exclusive citizenship that they usher us to make at the expense of our citizenship in heaven. And sometimes that will come through open persecution, but much more often it will come through a long siege of small mundane opportunities to compromise. Our response to these trials is not unlike those who came before us. To be constant in our practice of heavenly citizenship is to follow Christ and worship God every Sunday in his church, to work and pray and give for the spread of the kingdom, to live at peace with all insofar as it depends on us, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, to care for orphans and for widows in their distress, and to remain unspotted from the world. If we do these things, we will offer the life we have been given to something that will endure. We will be spared the shame of expending our lives for something that will be long forgotten long before the end comes. The citizenship of heaven never expires, never becomes irrelevant, and can only be lost if we renounce it. Nothing else in this world can make us anything like this kind of offer. As Advent draws near, and we turn to ready our hearts to meet the Lord, may he find us waiting for him, and not another to deliver us. May we not, in the end, reject him in favor of a false savior of our, of our choosing, 
or a savior idol of our making. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.